0: Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church sermon of the week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. The good feeling in this house this morning really it was nice. Just such a nice time of worship this morning, and I'm looking forward to just getting into the word of God. I just want to share with you a little personal story that I hope relates this morning. I've talked to you a little bit about my life in the city and wrestling with what I'll call you know, the, the country. We live, in the, we live in the city, but the country's kind of encroaching. So I have to learn about things. I talked to you A while ago, about how the woodpeckers attacked my home. And this spring, I had to spend some time repairing holes. And what I didn't want to do was have to deal with it again. But I learned. And I learned through a couple of beautiful people here Alan Linda Lawrence, and they gave me some decoys to mount on my house because they told me hey woodpeckers are territorial we put these up never had a problem again so thank you to them they helped me out of my sentries on guard now keeping the those terrible oh home wreckers uh, out of my uh, out of my situation but then at the end of last summer underneath my deck behind our house we have a deck it's Several steps above the ground, it has a skirt all the way around. You really can't see underneath it or anything. But critters can burrow under there. Skunk. Oh, Ooh. it was eeping into the house, the basement. Oh, my gosh. What do I do? I have to learn about what do you, how do you get rid of a skunk? I bought this skunk repellent. It smelled worse than the skunk. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> skunk did not care i kind of had figured out where his little burrow was i went through gallons of ammonia literally gallons poured it down there didn't phase him well i learned there are nocturnal skunks so i took a big long painter's pole i could extend to maybe 15 feet or so and i stuck a super bright led light on it And I ran it right up to where I thought that burrow was. Turned it on, left it for a week. I got this little trap door. I can put my ladder and stuff under there. I left the trap door open. And after a week, sweet relief! Thank you, Jesus. No more skunk. Now this year, I got this thing called a groundhog. I had to. I had to research this critter. I didn't even know what it was. Julie called me one day and she said, there's this thing on the deck sunning itself. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's a groundhog or a woodchuck, they call them. How do I get rid of this thing? It loves digging burrow, these tunnels. So he digs under, I've got bricks. I've been bricking up the whole thing. Moved the bricks. Seriously, lifted them. I'm thinking, how did he do this? He's, a, he's, he's definitely a worker of this little critter. So I got to learn a little bit more about him. I got to learn about these country things, even though I live in the city. And I want to take this little example about, we have to learn sometimes about animals, critters, nature. And I want to tie this into attacks. Attacks on the church and attacks on us. What do we do when our faith is attacked. What do we do when the church, the faith of the church, comes under oppression, attack? I hope this little illustration becomes applicable. How do we outwit critters, especially us city folk? We need to learn a few things. So from this bio, from our Bible this morning, we'll see such an image. And It's from the Apostle Paul, been using some of the example of his life for the past couple of weeks. He was speaking to the elders in the church of Ephesus, and I touched on this a bit last week, but I want to spend some time here this morning, just park a little bit in Acts chapter 20 uh, near the end, so if you have your, your Bible, you can get prepared for that. This incident occurred in uh, the life of Paul after he had spent years, uh, over a decade, establishing churches throughout Asia Minor and Europe. He had traveled, uh, spent time at different cities where churches were being established. He helped to just get them stable. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He knew he would face some problems. We talked about that. He was waiting to board a boat. He was in this uh, port town called Miletus and. Uh, It was about 60 miles from the city of Ephesus before Paul would board his boat. He sent for the elders in the city of Ephesus, elders of the church there. He wanted to speak to them before he sailed away to Jerusalem. When they arrived, he told them, I'm leaving. I'm going to Jerusalem. I know hardship awaits me. He also reminded them how he had preached repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And he had stayed true to that call. And he had preached to everyone, didn't matter who they were, Jew or Gentile. God's salvation, Jesus was open to everybody. Then he shared something very, very difficult for the Ephesian elders to hear. And Paul said this, I know that none of you will ever see me again. That's some hard news. They were devastated. It was a real shock, just like getting punched in the gut, bam. And yet there was more, more that he was going to tell them that was going to be hard to to take. And I want to pick it up in Acts chapter 20. This is verses 28 to 32. Paul the apostle speaking to these Ephesian elders. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul had a few more things to say about how he hadn't burdened them while he was there in the city of Ephesus. And the account concludes with verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. After these Ephesian elders had heard some really difficult news, you will never see me again. Paul then does his best to encourage these elders, encourage them in their leadership. Keep watch over the flock. God, the Holy Spirit has put you there. He has made you overseers. You are leaders. So be shepherds. Be shepherds of the church of God. Why? Jesus bought it with his blood. This makes it very important. This is not a trivial matter. Christ died for the church and he died for you and you are there to lead. It's important. Jesus gave his life for this. Now in this encouragement, Paul uses some images. He used the image of a flock and a shepherd. And this is a very familiar image Even to those city dwellers in Ephesus, because their lives in the city were different than our lives in the city. They were interconnected with agriculture, livestock, way more than we are. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see these examples of how people lived. And the Old Testament and the New Testament are filled with these types of images. Go all the way back to the patriarchs of Israel, they were shepherds. King David in his youth was a shepherd. David wrote the memorable Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And he speaks of green pastures, still waters for the flock, for the sheep. He speaks of the shepherd's rod and the staff with the hook on it. In the New Testament, we know the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. He was laid in a manger. It's a feeding trough for animals. It's a place where livestock were. Jesus described his disciples as his little flock. He portrayed himself as the good shepherd. So these were familiar illustrations. The people in the cities of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, they relied on the local agriculture, the farmers. They were familiar with these things because they dealt with them. Even though they might have lived in a city. Most of us, we don't deal with any of that. We go to the supermarket, our fruit is picked. Our meat has all been processed, taken care of. It's packaged. Everything's just there for us to select and pick. When the Bible uses these images of wildlife and such, sometimes we've got to learn a little bit. We have to learn a little bit. I have to take time to learn about shepherds and sheep. And I don't even know how to deal with a groundhog. So I, I think it's, it's something we should do if we're not so familiar. And So I've tried to learn about sheep and shepherds a bit. As, as far as sheep are concerned, this is how much I've interacted with them in my life. I've seen a flock of sheep one time in my life, a big flock of sheep. I've seen a lot of cows and such. I mean, we could drive through Michigan. We see big herds of cow, but uh, not so much sheep. I've seen uh, one time. So I have to learn a little bit. And the image really isn't that hard to learn about. We, we can learn sheep require care. They require tending. They are livestock. They have someone to look after them and they need that. They need to be looked after day and night. That's the job of a shepherd, to be the caregiver, the overseer. They watch out for the flock, and they want to tend it, keep it from being harmed. Paul encouraged the elders of Ephesus, you're shepherds, you have a flock, someone to take care of, and you're so important. Jesus died for you. So take that image seriously. And then comes the next image, and it's that of a wild animal. Paul said, after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and they will not spare the flock. He had spent about three and a half years in the city of Ephesus. Now he was leaving. And he said, basically, when I go, everything's going to fall apart. Savage wolves will come in and they're not going to spare the flock. The church is the picture of the flock. That's, that's the image. The elders are the shepherds. They're there to care. And savage wolves are coming to tear up the flock. Now, who does this represent? What's the image of these savage wolves represent? Who does that represent? And how do we deal with it? How do those elders deal with it? Well, we need to learn a little bit about wolves so that we might not get outwitted outsmarted, I got outsmarted by a skunk. It took me weeks to get rid of him. Wolves who can tear the flock apart. so what is what is it about a wolf? Well, a wolf, first of all they 're not from the flock they 're not sheep this it 's an image of an of an outsider. Sheep are pastured, they're looked after, they're tended, they're cared for. The wolf is wild. And usually wolves run in packs of several or many. Sometimes they might be a loner. We've heard the saying, the lone wolf. But more often in a a little pack. And Paul used the plural, wolves. He didn't say a wolf's coming. He said, Wolves are coming. Wolves are predators. They're predators, not like sheep that are herbivores. Wolves are carnivorous and their mission is to get their prey. They are known for stalking and attacking their prey, even sheep, sometimes by the cover of night. And what the people of Paul's time were familiar with, because Flocks and uh, shepherds were on their hillsides close to their cities. They were familiar with it. Still happens today. We may not see it, but it happens in our time. Just a couple of months ago, uh, a few months in August, in Oregon, there was a flock of sheep attacked by wolves. This little story tells it the headline said, Eastern Oregon Wolf Pack Gets Blamed for Nine Attacks on Sheep. According to an Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife report, a shepherd in the Camella area of Mount Emily notified a ranch hand on July 4 that sheep had scattered from around their bedding area near his trailer the previous evening. Two lambs were injured, seven sheep were lost. It took several days to locate the remains of the lost sheep, where tracks of multiple wolves were also found. The wolves came in under the cover of darkness. The flock became confused, and they were frightened. They experienced destruction and loss. Now, this article used an appropriate word, scattered, the wolves came in, the flock scattered. And this is the image that Paul's trying to get across to these Ephesian elders. There are some who are going to come in. It's an image of outsiders intent on destroying your church, on scattering the flock, causing confusion and hurt and pain among you. In our day... What could those outsiders be that might want to affect the church? We don't need to look too far. The culture has shaped many wolves. Many wolves that want to push and press and change the Christian church. Well, the church, well, it's it's too conservative. Well, and it's it's too judgmental. Well, it should just be more of a club, a social gathering, a place to meet friends, maybe a business network. It should be a welcoming place open to all, right? Why is the, the church is exclusionary? It must be non judgmental. It should never speak of sin. That's hate speech. It should welcome every lifestyle. You know, these are the wolves of the culture, and they've pressed on the church, and they've pressed on the church. And it has affected many churches. There's no doubt about that. It's undeniable that churches in Christian churches have yielded to some of these pressures and changes. Paul warned of it. Wolves, outsiders, they want to come in and destroy the church. And he continued, Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth. In order to draw away disciples after them. The New Testament has a sort of a parallel passage. It's in the letter of Jude. Jude wrote something very similar. Jude, Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter in Jude. But Jude 1 verse 4. He wrote, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. This parallels Paul's warning. There are some inside, in the flock, and they want to distort the truth. And in Paul's writing, there's no image. He doesn't say it's a wolf, a sheep, a flock, a shepherd. No, He just states it plainly. Look, there's some inside, some of your own number. They're going to arise and distort the truth. And they have an agenda. They want to draw people away to be their own. Now, this was the first century church. What type of example could we find? Someone in their church trying to distort the truth. We can look at an example from the church in the city of Ephesus and see that it's still happening today. Same things. Paul spent three years, as I said, in in the city of Ephesus. He said that as he was talking to those elders, I've been with you three years, warning you with tears, night and day. In the city of Ephesus, uh, there may have been more than one church. The The development was helped by Paul as he spent three years there. But history attests to the Apostle John being an overseer and pastor. And especially in the time after Paul left, John pastored the church in Ephesus. John wrote letters. One, two, and three. First, second, and third John. These letters history says, we were directed to the church in the city of Ephesus. In John's first letter, there is indications that what Paul said, it was taking place. The church was dealing with internal chaos and confusion and conflict. Although John wrote with love and he wrote kindly, he was pointing out troubles. One example. Just one example. First John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He wrote this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, John wrote a lot about sin In that first chapter. And this idea that there's a denial of sin. And that is something that was evidently occurring in his church. There were people that were putting forward this doctrine, this idea that, well, one could be sinless. And that continues to today. It it does. A number of years ago, I had several discussions uh, with someone who told me, I do not sin. That's what they said. I don't sin ever. Now, this was based on a scripture that Paul wrote uh, when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome, Paul's personal testimony, Romans chapter seven. He writes a lot about sinning in Romans seven. And he wrote, I hate what I do, but I do it. I do what I hate to do. And then Paul wrote, but it's no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So based on this little snippet of scripture, lifting this one little portion, basically out of context, you know, this person told me they're a spiritual being, born again, born of the spirit. And thus, I don't sin ever. Only my flesh. I don't sin. No, I'm spiritual. The flesh, yes, just like Paul, he said it. He no longer sins. He doesn't, but his flesh does. He gave me a textbook and a workbook and it had homework. I took the time to look it over. Yes. He explained, you know, Christians, we're missing it. We are missing it. We can be sinless. And he wanted a class taught here. Use this book and this workbook. And I, I said, listen, this notion that we can be sinless, it just doesn't, it just doesn't reconcile with the whole of Scripture. And this idea that our spirit is separated from our flesh, that goes against Scripture. Paul actually in Romans 8 said, if the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives within me, then I, I will be quickened. I will be made alive. There's the connection between spirit and body. Well, I had to, of course, decline this idea of teaching this class. No, we're not going to teach this class. No, we're not going to use that material. And I said, please, please, do not spread this material around the church. We need to take in the totality of scripture. John stated it plainly. If you claim you do not sin, you don't have the truth. And he said, confess your sins. He was Writing to a church, Christians, and that's just a single example of these ideas, these so-called revelations, new revelations that someone to introduce and push into the church from within, and distort the truth. So Paul warned these elders, and I can only imagine what they were thinking. First, the gut punch: I'll never see you again. And now, listen: you're going to be confronted by outsiders, wolves. They're going to rip your church apart, and they're going to be those in the church. That are going to do their best to distort the truth. What can we do? I can, I can only imagine they're thinking, what? what are we going to do? Paul did not leave them without encouragement. He did not leave them without direction. His words were directed to these leaders of the church of Ephesus, and I say they're applicable to the entire church. They're applicable to every single one of us. He said, first, be on guard. Be on your guard. Watch. Look out. Look out for those that might try to import deceit and pervert the grace of our God and turn it into a license for immorality. Be on the guard. Look out for them. Paul went on. He went on. And he said, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up. God and his word can God and his word can. Here's another word for can. God and his word are able. They're able to lift the church, to help the church, to carry the church, to build the church, to keep the church. And when the church strays from, the, from God, when the church strays from his word, then trouble is going to come. So Paul says, I commit you to this. I commit you to God and his word. Now that advice to those elders in the church, it is applicable to every single one of our personal lives. We are all individually a sheep in God's flock. All of us, all of our families, our families, our circles, our friends, we might call these little flocks. And there is an enemy. There is an enemy that seeks to destroy, destroy us individually, destroy us And our little flocks, the apostle Peter wrote something similar to Paul. He said, be alert, be of sober mind. Hey, that's that's be on guard. Look out, watch it. And Peter said, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. A roaring lion, a savage wolf. Are you getting the picture? Do we see the image? We need to be on uh, the the lookout. We need to be alert. We need to watch for these predators that are seeking to devour. And if we believe all that Jesus said about eternal life and salvation and breaking the chains of bondage and going uh, to heaven when we uh, pass from this earth, all of it, if we believe that, we ought to believe also that Jesus spoke of an enemy and he spoke of a devil. Jesus was tempted by the devil. Jesus said the devil can tempt the word of God from your heart so that you will not believe. Jesus likened the devil to an enemy that would plant weeds into a a farmer's field so that would choke out everything. Someone may come against you. Something may come against you. Someone or something may come against you or your little flock. Something from the outside. I recently read about a high school girl in New York. All she wanted to do was start a Bible club in her high school. Now, her high school had 35 clubs. 35! It had a French club, a math club, it had a National Honor Society club, it had a Rainbow Pride club, it had a Go Green Recycle club, and it had many others. 35 clubs. But the school relentlessly resisted the founding of a Christian club. And they sought to scatter this, this little flock, this girl and a, and a few people that wanted to have a Christian club. Now, there might be someone or something causing brokenness, pain in you, in your family. There might be something from the outside pressing in like a wolf trying to tear you apart. Outside influences might be coming against you, influences to pull you, to distract you, to take you into addiction. You might be dealing with a sickness, loss of work, all manner of things that are trying to push you from your faith in Christ. Attacks on us and our faith, they can come from the outside and they can also come from the inside. And that's difficult and it's hard and it can be tumultuous, broken homes, broken homes. One spouse who one spouse who who's confessed to be a Christian who just walks out on another. Children raised in a Christian family who who one day may say, Mom or Dad, hey, I see things differently. And then all this religious stuff, forget about it. I don't believe it. My college professor has enlightened me. And what does that do? The family? that little flock is in turmoil. And that is not an unusual example. Not, I saw this story and I had to read it twice. I almost fell out of my chair. Harvard University. Harvard was founded in 1636, almost 400 years ago. It was called New College when it was founded. Three years later, it became Harvard because Reverend John Harvard bequeathed half of his estate and his entire library to the college. So they called it Harvard. For over seven decades, the president of Harvard was someone in the clergy. From the very beginning, the aim of the school was to educate those that were in ministry. That was their primary focus. It adopted the slogan, Truth for Christ and the church. Now here we are about 4 centuries later and Harvard has just named a new president of its organization of chaplains. The head of the chaplaincy at Harvard University. Now remember this university founded with the slogan truth for Christ and the church. Chaplain Greg Epstein, he took the job in August. He is an atheist. And he is known as the author of this book. It's called Good Without God. He's the head of the chaplaincy at Harvard University. New York Times article said, many Harvard students attest to the influence Mr. Epstein has had on their spiritual lives. Mr. Epstein's community has tapped into the growing desire for meaning without faith in God. Now, by all accounts, he's a great guy. I make no personal judgments on him. Sounds like just a great person, invites the students, mentors them. But he denies the sovereignty of Jesus. And he would turn students from the grace of our God. He would turn them from their faith. And the article speaks of students. It gives examples of students who have left their faith. Mothers who are shocked. Now that student might have a brother, a sister. It affects the home. Now they're in, they're inside. And the flock is suffering from the inside. Be alert, be on guard. Watch for these deceptions. Watch out for the deceptions of the devil. Ah, they seem very uh, crafty, subtle. Watch for these deceptions. Like a wolf under the cover of darkness. And when they come in, when they come in, you're not on your own. Paul wrote, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up. He was saying that to the church. Take it individually. As Christians, know this, know this. You have been committed to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up, which can What can build you up? Who can build you up? God can. God is able. And if you don't believe that, know it. He is able. Trust him. Try him. The Lord Jesus Christ can. He can. Yes, he can. He's able to build you up. He's able to carry you. He's able to put you back together when you've been destroyed. He's able to take on any assault from without or from within. He's able to preserve you. He can keep you from falling, but he can carry you. He can carry you you so that you can carry out his work through you. Jesus can do this. He wants to increase your grace, increase your knowledge. He wants to help you to abound in every good word and every good work. Yes, he does. He is able. He is able. He is able. He is able. Paul said, know that the attacks are coming. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if you're getting hit from the outside, if you're getting hit from the inside. And let me tell you, over the past year and a half, we've been hit. We've been hit from the outside. We've been hit from the inside. The church has been hit. The church has been hit. Individuals have been hit from the inside, the outside. And if there's any fear, if there's any apprehension, know this, Paul met it. Paul met it when he said, we have a God who is able. We have a God who can. He's able to build you up. He is. Jesus, Jesus has the heart of every single one of you in his hand. He has you in his hand right now. All power is his. Jesus can remove every single obstacle. He can supply every single need. There's no difficulty. There's no difficulty for him when it's for his glory and for our ultimate good. He's able. He is able to build us up. Nothing, no power, no power from hell. No power of the devil can prevent it or stop it ever. You know, Satan may cast his fiery arrows and yes, they come. Evil people might bring persecution. Yes, they do. But the foundation of God stands sure. The Lord knows those who are his. He has you. He has you and he is able and he can. God has given us his word too, his word of assurance. Paul said, God can. And the word of his grace, the word of his grace, Jesus is able and he has given us his word, which is truth. It's truth. You be on guard against deception, and you use this—the truth. We must have it. We must. I want to tell you. There was one of uh, you know we we hear messages sometimes, and things just stick with us. So one of the memorable messages that I heard from Dr. Annalee Dunn, it was about this idea of deception and counterfeit. And I remember she said, "Not as not exact quote, but this is how I remember it." counterfeiters can be good. The only way to identify the counterfeit is to know the real, to know the authentic. That's how you can that's how you can see the counterfeit. The only way to spot what is false is to know the truth. It's to know the truth. We've got the truth. We have got the truth. Let me tell you, you don't need another word. You do not need another word. You don't need some uh, voice from heaven to tell you what to do or to give you some reassurance. An angel an angel cannot bring you a better word than we have right here. An angel from heaven cannot bring you a better word. It's written for you right here, right here in this Bible of ours. What are we told in here? What are we told in here? We've got forgiveness. We have forgiveness of our sin. We're, there's forgiveness for the guilty right here the gift of love of Jesus Christ that he gave his life for each and every one of us. It tells us that he took our sins and our sorrows and he made them his own. We're told of rest. We're told of rest for the weary, rest for the weary soul. We're told of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is promised for every single one of us who will be our comforter, he will be our guide, he'll be our protector. He will be our teacher. It's here. In here, we're told heaven is our home. In here, we have everything. We have everything, all our help and all of our hope. If we are aimless, if we're frightened, if we're apprehensive because there's a fiery dart from the outside, there's turmoil on the inside. When trouble comes, if we're afraid, we might've forgot our Bible. Do not do that. You have the truth. Never forget the truth. Never, ever take hold of Christ. Take hold of him. He is able. You take hold of his word. It's a word of truth. When Paul finished, when he had finished, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And I find no other appropriate way to draw this service to a close than to do precisely that. We have these altars here. Anyone who wants to kneel, you're free to come and kneel. You want to stay at your seat, that's fine. You want to kneel at your seat, that's fine. But I want to kneel and pray with you because I know some of you are experiencing fiery darts. You're, you're experiencing turmoil from without and from within. I know the church has been dealing with it. I know. Let's pray. We have a God who is able Let's pray. Lord, my God, thank you for your word of encouragement. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, we know that we deal with turmoil, strife, trial, tribulations from without and from within. We've been warned of it. We've experienced it. God, if we're falling apart, if we're losing our way, we're frightened or apprehensive. Help us to take this word to heart. We've been committed to you and to your word. And God, I pray over this entire congregation and over anyone, anyone who is listening. I commit them to you, God, to your power and grace and love and help and shelter and care and to the word of your truth. And God, may we be people who seek you through your word and love you through your word, and hear you through your word, God. Lord, we pray that the truth would just penetrate our hearts and our lives and our souls. May we not look to any other voice. God, Lord, if there's some atheist that's put in charge of our children, God, we pray that you would help us to guide and direct and pull them from that, Lord, with your truth, with your truth. Reign upon hearts, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. You bought us with your blood. Oh, Lord Jesus, Paul reminded the church we were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. We're important to him. God, he has loved us with his life. God, help us to help us to just stand in that grace and to know that love. And whatever comes our way, be it from without or from within, to know you've got us in the palm of your hand. You love us. You'll carry us. You'll keep us. You'll help us. You'll guide us. You'll direct us. Lord, pour out that encouragement on every single one. Lord, may we not leave here apprehensive or fearing anything, but knowing with confidence we're in the hands of the living God, our creator. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just love you and worship you. We honor you and praise you. We thank you, Lord. We give you thanksgiving and honor and praise and glory. There's none like you. There's none beside you. We worship your holy name. We thank you and praise you. You're glorious. Thank you for the salvation of our souls. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. Help us to never, ever fall to any deception. May we be covered by your grace and love. Oh, Lord, may it be for everyone here and everyone listening in the name of our Savior, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen and amen.